Matthew chapter 9, verse 9 says, As Jesus passed on from there, there is his home base in Capernaum, probably at Peter's house, the base of his operations. He saw a man named Matthew, the gospel writer, sitting in his tax office, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. Now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house that, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with he and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw it, the religious leaders, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard that, and he seems to overhear everything, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. And he pulls this from the book of Hosea, where God says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now the disciples of John, they're more credible. John the Baptist. They came and said, why do we and the Pharisees fast often? They're actually joining themselves to, to the religious leaders who Jesus often condemned. But your disciples seem to never fast. Jesus said to them, can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The answer is no. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away. And then they'll fast, uh, three days in the tomb. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment for the patch pulls away from the garment and the tear is made worse. Nor do they put wine into old wineskins or else the wineskins break, the wine is spilled, the wineskins are ruined. Rather, they put new wine into new wineskins, and so both are preserved. Historically, this text is titled, The Call of Matthew. And I think it's important, right? We're studying Matthew for a year, the Gospel of Matthew. It's the longest gospel. He's one of the 12 apostles. Now, Jesus had many disciples. In fact, we're all disciples, right? A disciple's a learner, an apprentice, a follower. We're all disciples of Jesus. There are only and will ever be the 12. In fact, next week, chapter 10, Matthew's going to go through the list. It's a great list. We know so much about some of them and very little about others. Uh, it's a fascinating study. But we know this. Matthew writes a gospel. There are only four gospels. Uh, we know he's a tax collector and yet we get one verse about his conversion. One verse. Now, I love The Chosen. I'm a fan. I love the backstory. I know a lot of you guys like The Chosen. And whenever you ask somebody if they like The Chosen, because some people are weirded out by the liberties of the backstories, almost all women say, we love Matthew. It's like the first thing you hear from women, right? Guys are like, what? And by the way, ladies, um, you all would have liked Peter and John. Uh, back in high school, back in college, right? I, I don't know what this fascination with Matthew and the Chosen is. One verse about his conversion. And, and think of what we've been studying, right? Three chapters, uh, we get on the Sermon on the Mount, right? Jesus the teacher. And then rapid fire, we get into chapters eight and nine, Jesus the healer, one after another, Jesus healing people. And then finally, the paralytics, you know, lowered in from the roof. And everybody's there for the show, right? This is Jesus the healer, and Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Now we have Jesus, the one who can forgive sins, and only God can forgive sins. And in the midst of all these miracles is what I consider the greatest miracle, 
And that is the conversion and the transformation of a human heart and a human soul. There's nothing like it, guys. Uh, I'll go to my grave saying, for all that I've done and experienced, and I've experienced a lot, the power of a changed life just floors me. It really does. There's nothing greater than sitting with a person and hearing their story, and you're like, you've got to be kidding me. I know the power of God, but I, how, how did God do this? You know, uh, Amazing Grace is arguably the greatest song, at least in Western history, right? So if we were still paying royalties to John Newton's heirs, they'd all be rich, right? It's the number one song of all time. And the reason why we love it, and listen, I love every song we sang today. I love contemporary songs. I love what God has done through worship. But man, you fire up Amazing Grace, and it just rocks, right? Two, three hundred years we've been singing this song. John Newton grows up in an irreligious home, becomes a captain of a slave trading vessel, gets radically slaved. God deals with his heart. He gives up slave trading, goes to Bible college, becomes an Anglican priest, and one day takes a pen and writes these words. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, where God saved a wretch like me who was lost and now I'm found. I was blind and now I see. That's all the theology you know. That's all the testimony you need, right? In our bookstore, there are books of testimonies. There's films. Like people go on and on about their testimony. That's all you need, right? Everyone in heaven will sing that. Everyone not in heaven can't sing it. Because they can't see inside their heart where they were a wretch, where they were lost and now they're found. This is the song of heaven, guys. This is the song we sing. Now, it's Christmas. Uh, one of my favorite things at Christmas is to watch a lot of the Christmas carol. I read it every year. I watch all the movies. I love George C. Scott. I, lo I love the Jim Carrey uh, CGI one. It's one of my favorites. And the reason I love Scrooge, and Dickens ripped it from the gospel, right, is this miser, cranky old guy in one night is radically converted. He wakes up a new man. He's running around like a schoolboy. He buys the prize goose for Bob Cratchit's family. He's metamorphosized. This is the gospel, the miracle of conversion. Jesus said, Jews look for signs. Gentiles, we want information. And Jesus said, here's the sign, the sign of Jonah. And the sign of Jonah, by the way, is that Jonah, like, that Jonah, like Jesus, gave himself up for the men on that ship. Jesus, three days and three nights in the heart of the ship. So we're going to look at Matthew's conversion. Now, we don't know a lot about the guy. He writes the longest gospel and not much about himself. A uh, very humble man. His name isn't even Matthew. I think I've told you this before. Jesus was really big on giving people nicknames, right? James and John are the sons of thunder, Bonerges. You know, Simon, good Jewish name, becomes Peter. Peter's not a Jewish name, neither is Matthew. You ever meet a Jewish person, Matthew or Peter? It's rare, right? They're mostly Christians. He changes his name to the gift of God. But his name was Levi, Luke tells us. The fact that his name was Levi means there are brokenhearted parents somewhere. He was raised in a tribe where the sons became priests, steeped in the scriptures. There's a reason why he quotes the Old Testament more than Mark, Luke, and John combined. He grew up in this. He, he knew about the nation of Israel, the promise made to Abraham. He knows the scripture, and yet there comes a point in his life where he's willing to turn his back on all of it. 
He's willing to turn his back on the temple and feast days, family, friends, everything he knows. And he does it for three reasons, and he does it consciously. One, money. Money doesn't, makes us do crazy things. You know, the love of money is the root of all evil. Money's not the root of all evil. You can do a lot of good with money. But people chase a dollar, and it's conscience, and they wind up in a certain place. And that was Matthew for sure. The other is what Ross Dutho calls bad religion. Um, Matthew saw the temple. He saw Annas, Caiaphas. He saw the corruption, the money changers. He thought, they all got theirs. I'm going to go get mine. Ross Dutho said, America's problem isn't too much religion or too little of it. It's bad religion. The slow motion collapse of traditional Christianity and the rise of what he calls a variety of destructive pseudo-Christianities in its place. Whether it was conservative evangelicals hinting that the Holy Spirit had a strong position on the proper rate of marginal taxation, or liberal clergymen insisting that loving your neighbor as yourself required supporting higher levels of social spending, two generations of Christian spokesmen steadily undercut the credibility of the religious, religious message by wedding it to the doctrines of the Democratic Party or, will offend everyone this morning, the platform of the GOP. It's getting quiet in this Presbyterian church. In this America, too, the Christian teaching that every human soul is unique and precious has been stressed. That's good. But the prophets of self-fulfillment and gurus of self-love at the expense of the equally important teaching that every human soul is fatally corrupted by original sin. Absent the latter emphasis, religion becomes a license for egotism, selfishness, easily employed to justify what used to be considered, think about this, deadly sins like avarice. The result is a society where pride becomes a healthy self-esteem, vanity becomes self-improvement, adultery becomes following your heart, greed and gluttony become living the American dream. Wow. Bad religion. And Matthew saw all of it. And, and by the way, there's lifestyle. You know, prodigals, right? We look at prodigals. Sometimes it's, it's money. Sometimes they grow up in a corrupt religious system, right? None of it's an excuse. Some of it's just lifestyle. I want to go do what I want to do. I want to live the way I want to live. That's what the prodigal son did. And you look at all this, and it's Matthew. And it was some of you, and maybe it's some of you sitting here, or some of you who might ever listen to this. And then one day, a rabbi walks by his tax office. Matthew doesn't come to church. He would never come to church. He would never go to synagogue. He's been, you know, he's out of all those places. And Jesus says, follow me, and boom, he gets up. Now, is that how it really happens? I don't think so. You know, some people say it takes 50, this is hard to believe, 50 seeds of the gospel before you're converted. I remember laying in bed, 15 years old, uh, the sports radio was just starting, and I had this little transistor, it was right in my bed, it's kind of like your iPhone now, and I'm listening to sports radio, and I fell asleep, and I wake up three in the morning, and Hal Lindsey, I have no idea who he is, is on the radio, he's the best-selling author, New York Times author of the 70s, he wrote books on prophecy, the late great planet Earth, the road to Armageddon, and he's talking about the end of the world. And in my mind, I'm 15 years old. Tomorrow, I'm going to go out and buy this book. Never remembered that night until the night I said the sinner's prayer. 
And I remembered seven other incidents that night that I never remembered. Some plant, some water, God gives the increase, right? Now, I deplore this idea. When we tell somebody the gospel, we're like, all right, you're going to believe? I just gave you the gospel, say the sinner's prayer, right? We're not car salesmen, right? There's a process. This is a big decision. But Matthew says he arose and followed. Now, I believe Matthew had a void, like all of us. We're all hardwired for God. Even scientists believe that. Scientists believe there's something in our brain where we're hardwired for God. That God put it there, right? He put eternity in our hearts. And I believe Matthew would sit in that tax office with all the money and all the things he wanted, just, just longing for something authentic and something real. And I think like the centurion and Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, you know, he's heard about Jesus. He's heard some of these teachings, maybe seen a miracle or two. And now a religious leader comes to the tax office. Now, why is that astounding? Because, because we're going to see here in the text later, Pharisees, disciples of John, would never be around these people, right? The law of the bad apple, right? Every, everything gets corrupted. You know, bad company corrupts good character. You don't even go around these people. And here's Jesus comes to the tax office. And guys, that's the gospel, Right? Uh, somebody walking in this building or sizzling summer and walking down and getting baptized, that's like a message in the bottle conversion, right? You know, sizzling summer, people walk down, they get baptized, everybody cheers. And I'm like, wait a second. There's no cheering if you don't bring anyone. No one's coming here. No one's waking up on Sunday morning like, man, I see that building over there. I think I should go. It's just not going to happen. It's you and me going into the marketplace where people are, the tax office, and telling them about Jesus. Right in his place of employment, Jesus says, follow me. And Matthew, in all his humility, said, I followed. Now, he did a lot more than that. Luke said he gave everything up. And he throws a party. Had to be expensive. Look at verse 9. I love this. This is one of the things I love about calling. Is it says, Jesus saw a man. You and I would have saw a tax collector. You and I would have saw a Democrat, a Republican, a rich man, a poor man, a prostitute, someone who deserves what they got. Jesus sees a man made in the image of God, marred by sin. See, when you get along with God, when you pray, when you read the scriptures, you begin to see men as people needing salvation. He sees a man. He sees the sum total of a life lived at this point, all the decisions, good and bad, all the heartache, all the, all the things that has run through the, you know, nothing's name, no backstory, right? The woman at the well, we know she had five husbands. We get no backstory here, but, but we can understand it, right? No one likes tax collectors, right? Now, I've never seen a tax collector. Money comes out of my check. Uh, the toll booth, by the way, they're tax collectors, but now you got easy pass. No one likes tax collectors. We just don't see them anymore. Matthew bought a franchise. You believe this? Josephus tells us, the great historian, that just in Galilee alone, they would send 200 talents to Rome. That's $5 million in today's money. Matthew bought a franchise. He sat right there. 
They were like this every time they went by. This guy was as despised as can be. And Jesus saw a man and said, follow me. Calling blows my mind. God's ability to get into the life and heart of a person, I, I just don't get it. And, and it's like Jesus says, come into my world. That's what God does, right? Come into my world. Come and see is the idea. And come and you shall see. This is what Jesus said to so many of the men he called. Now, I'm not a Calvinist. If you're here and you don't know what a Calvinist is, that's good. You're in a good position. You don't have to research it. Don't get into it. Uh, I'm not going to do them justice, and I know what Calvinism is. It's basically that God chooses some and he, he doesn't choose others. Um, I'm not an Arminianist. Again, I can't do justice to their position, but basically God's given every human being free choice. There's a day you will hear the gospel and you have to either accept or reject. The reason I'm neither of those is because I think man always has to figure it out, right? I, I think with God, it's left a little more mysterious than that. I think when I get to heaven, the sign on the gates will say, whosoever will may enter. And then when I go through and look back, it'll say chosen from the foundation of the world. To believe one or the other, I've got to cut too many scriptures out of my Bible. So I leave it in the mysterious work of God. Was I called? Yes. Was I drawn by the Holy Spirit? Yes. Was I smart enough to accept? No. But I did. And so did Matthew and so did many of you. What are we called to? Some people think we're called to heaven. That salvation is the minimal entrance requirements for getting to heaven. That's bogus. It's part of it, but it's bogus. We're invited to this grand journey, to this feast, to this banquet. At least it's been that way for me for 30-odd years. Um, we've been invited to something we could have never fathomed. And to see what we've been invited to, you have to look at the criticism here, right? The Pharisees come, and they're saying, why does your master eat with these sinners and tax collectors? And then John's disciples say, yeah, you guys should be fasting. Now, the occasion they're talking about is what some have titled a Matthew party. You all have Matthew parties? Anybody? A Matthew party is where you go and get all your friends, right? And a lot of this is like when you're a new believer, right? You have all this zeal, you found God, you're excited, you gotta tell everybody. So you get all your friends who you know, and then you get like your new people, the religious crowd, and you toss them up, right? Try it on the Super Bowl this year. Invite 10 people from church and 10 people that are totally lost, toss them up and see what happens. That's a Matthew party, right? So Matthew has this lavish party. Spends a lot of money. Uh, I'm sure there were great beverages. There was food there. And think of the crowd. The 12 disciples are there. Jesus is there. Think about his crowd. Uh, there's nobody noble or upstanding because he's ostracized and so are they. Uh, these are the rejects of society. Uh, some of them wealthy, some not. There's probably sinners, prostitutes. This is a wild place to be, guys. And Jesus is caught into what is called guilt by association. That actually happened to me once, once that I know of, right? And by the way, you do anything for God, you'll be criticized. You all know that, right? One time I was at a fundraiser for an amazing, amazing ministry. And um, incredible night, worship and people speaking. And Ed Rendell, who was the mayor of Philadelphia at the time, 
uh, kind of walked in off the street and spoke because, you know, he knew this was an impoverished area and the leader of this ministry had worked with the mayor. I get a call two days later from a religious leader. Hey, I heard you're supporting abortion. I'm like, what? Yeah, I heard you're pro-abortion. I'm like, are you kidding me? Yeah, you were at an Ed Rendell rally. Someone saw you there the other night. I'm like, excuse me? This is guilt by association, right? This is Jesus, right? He, he's there, therefore he must be doing something wrong. And imagine what the night was like. I think a Bible study broke out. I don't think it started that way. Would have loved to see Jesus in this environment. I'd love to see Jesus at the wedding of Cana. Did Jesus dance? I don't know. Are Christians allowed to dance? They're allowed. They're not good at it, but they're allowed, right? <laughs> we don't know if anybody was converted. We don't know the conversation. But Jesus' answer to the criticism tells me everything. He said, guys, I'm a physician. Now think about this. We sang about the names of God, right? Of all the names of God, in every way Jesus could describe himself, all the metaphors, he said, hey, take this to the bank. I am a doctor. And what do doctors do? They diagnose. They diagnose what's wrong with us, right? Now Jesus has just been healing everyone, so maybe they're thinking he's a physician. He's come to heal everybody. He came to diagnose sin, right? Remember when he was born Christmas? Today is born to you, Christ the Lord, a Savior. He'll save his people from his sins. Healing the paralytic. Jesus said, what's easier, to heal a man or say your sins are forgiven? Right? And the idea is only God can forgive sins. The diagnosis was amazing grace. You and I, like sheep, have all gone astray. We were all born in the sin. Wearing a mask won't help you. There is no vaccine except the cross. Jesus diagnosed the entire human race as sinful. But this is the metaphor I love. I'm the bridegroom. No one needs to fast while I'm here. I'm the bridegroom. Of all the metaphors Jesus could have thought of, he said he was the bridegroom. Now, this takes us all the way back to Genesis, where God creates the world in six days. In chapter 1, verse 18, he said, it's not good that man should be alone. After six days of everything being good, and the sixth day it's very good, now something's not good in paradise, and sin hasn't entered yet, and that's man would be alone. Now, how was man alone? How was Adam alone if he had God, right? There's a lesson there, guys. This is why we're doing Unwrapping Christmas. Uh, sometimes people say, well, you have God, you, you should be good. No, no, we, we need God and we need others, right? That's the whole gospel. So God puts Adam in a sleep, takes out a rib, he fashions this woman, and, and what does Adam say? It's bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. She was taken out of man. You know what Adam said? She completes me. I'm complete. I have God, and I have Eve, and I'm whole. There's no void. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his flesh, and they shall become one flesh. Jesus said what God has put together, let no man pull asunder. Now, Here's what's amazing about this metaphor of Jesus being the bridegroom. Four times in the New Testament, Paul quotes Genesis 2, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother become, and he likens it to Christ in the church, Ephesians 5 being the strongest place. John 14, Jesus said, behold, if I leave, I go and prepare a place for you. That's what a bridegroom would do. 
he would leave the bride, go and prepare a place, and then bring her to that place. By calling himself the bridegroom, Jesus declared who he was and what we've been invited to. We've been invited to a grand feast, to a banquet. I've been feasting off the word of God and the things of God for 30-some years. And, and the closer I get, the grander it's going to be, right? He saved the best for last. This journey we're on, you know, we forget, is amazing. Think about where you would be without Christ, without fellowship, without the scriptures. We would be lost. We would be hopeless. He's given us this bounty, this great feast. It culminates in the book of Revelation at the marriage supper of the Lamb, where we're going to sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the people that you love and I love, and the people who have gone ahead. This grand reunion. If someone asks you, what's it mean to be a Christian? Say, man, I've been invited to a feast. Later on, Jesus is going to tell a parable of a king who had a wedding for his son. And he invited everyone to the feast. And they wouldn't come. And he said, go into the highways and the byways and compel them to come and get the halt, the blind, the lame. That's us, the Gentiles. Listen, because I want my house to be full. If you want to know anything about heaven, Sold out, all right? Down here, our tribe feels small. Heaven is sold out. It's full. And it's going to be a feast. And it's going to be a banquet. When Jesus said, I'm the bridegroom, he said a lot. You know what he said? I'm committed to you. Committed to you. Now, we live in an age where commitment's low, maybe not for you guys, but low in our culture. People sign up for things, they don't show up. People say they're going to do this, they don't do it. Commitment is about as low as I've seen it on the planet. FOMO rules the day, right? Fear of missing out, fear of a better offer. Yeah, I'm committed until I get something better on the iPhone, right? When Jesus said he's the bridegroom, he said, I am committed fully and wholly to you. That's what all of Scripture teaches. He'll never leave us or forsake us. He knows we're prone to wander. He knows we have a faithless heart. Even with the power of the Holy Spirit, he knows we're hard-hearted. He knows us. And he bears and suffers along with us as a great high priest. Jesus, out of all the things he could have quoted, quoted Hosea. He said to religious leaders, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy. It's really the word loving kindness has said in the Hebrew. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Now, the book of Hosea, <laughs> if God didn't tell Hosea this in the Bible, I would have counseled the other way. By the way, Hosea means salvation because it's a derivative of Joshua and Jesus, right? Hosea, Yeshua. Uh, of course, Jesus would quote the book named after him, right? But you go to Hosea, and God tells the prophet, this is the word of the Lord that came to Hosea, and it gives his credentials. The Lord began to speak to Hosea. He said, go take yourself a wife of harlotry and have children of harlotry, for the land has committed great harlotry by departing from the Lord. Now, I got to tell you, if you came up to me and said, God gave me a word. There's a prostitute I met last night. God wants me to marry her. Dude, you're whacked. You're out of your mind. Crazy, right? 
By the way, when you prophesy, no dates, no mates, no babies, right? That's all off the table. Anybody prophesies to you about those three things? Let it go in one ear and out the other. And the end of the world, right? And ten other things, but we'll leave that for another day. Go marry a prostitute. Now, Hosea does. And you know who it is. It's Gomer, right? He goes to the red light district, finds a prostitute. And look, it's noble, right? He, he takes her off a scrap heap, marries her. For the first time, sex isn't about money. It's about love and commitment. They have children, everything beautiful, everything wonderful, everything the way it's supposed to be. It's very noble. Hosea has picked a woman off the scrap heap. One day he comes home, and she's gone. By the way, we all signed up for that. The day you walked down an aisle, you signed up for that possibility. Unfaithfulness. She's gone. I'll paraphrase it. Hosea wants to burn the village down. Never see her again. God says, go find her. He goes and finds her. He finds her in someone else's arms. And God said, now you can preach to the nation. Because now you know what it feels like. Now you know the commitment I had to these people and to this nation. And now you know what it's like when I look down and they worship other gods. I went back and read the whole book of Hosea last night. You know what I came away with? We're all gomers. Every one of us. Every single one of us. Uh, Mike preached last week, my son, and, he, and when he, I don't know if it was here or Ardmore, and he said, we always, we're always the hero in the story when we read a Bible story. We're not Jose, we're Gomer. Because so much of what we pledged and promised to God, we have been unfaithful. And he's been so faithful. He never forgets who we are. He never leaves us. Look at the nation of Israel. Yeah, he scattered them, but 1948 is the greatest miracle in human history. A nation came back from the dead. And they speak Hebrew. Because God said, I'll remember them forever. And if I forget Jerusalem, I'll cut my right hand off, God said. They're my people, I've called them. Romans 9 through 11, uh, Paul said, is Israel forgotten? No. In fact, there's a day coming when all Israel's going to be saved. And by the way, that's the only proof of what God's going to do for you is what he did for them. And what he's committed to us kept for the final day. Now, this is a little weird. And God said, or Jesus said, I don't desire sacrifice. I desire your love, right? But, but there, there, there's something strange in here. If you look at marriage and even this context, there's a part of marriage that has duty. Amen, right? Uh, you got to do dishes, take the trash out. Got the honeydew list, things like duty. There's duty, right? And then there's delight, right? There's delight. There's duty and delight. There's duty. We all came to church today. Jesus went to the synagogue, as was his custom, habit. That's the word. There's duty. Prayer can be dutiful, right? There's also delight. Martin Luther said Christians are like a man, a drunken man on a horse. We swing one way or the other. Oh, it's all delight. Let me get on my knees and worship God 24 hours a day. And then there's people over here. It's all duty. It's all serving. No, it's both. It's always both ends. Same in a marriage. And so we look here and 
We look at Hosea, we look at Jesus, and Jesus saying, look, I'm the bridegroom. I'm here. No one's fasting while I'm here. Uh, fasting, by the way, in the Old Testament, and the only real place in the Old Testament you see fasting is at Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. All the other feasts, all the other six, are all days of revelry and feasting and joy and singing. That was the one solemn feast. That's the one feast where they fasted. We have this idea that fasting, and it is a spiritual discipline, you know, a church-wide fast, or, you know, I'm going to fast for my business. No, it was always a morning. Remember David fasted when his child died? And Jesus said, you're not fasting when I'm here. I'm here. But there's a day I'm not going to be here. And then you're going to fast and mourn. Uh, my daughter got engaged on Thanksgiving. I think Mike said that last week. Thank you. Um, and I don't think this way, but did you ever hear people say this when people are dating or get engaged? What does he see in her? Or what does she see in him? You, you ever say that? I think we've all said it, right? What does she see in him, right? And it's really love in its truest form because we're seeing the imperfections, the blemishes, right? That's why love is blind, right? Love sees past all those things. That's what I love about God. He saw past a tax collector. He saw past you and me. He saw past all of those things. He sees the best in us. He doesn't see Levi. He doesn't see a tax collector. He sees the gift of God. He doesn't see Peter, the vacillating one. He sees Rocky. He sees the best in who we are and what we can become. Matthew would have wound up as Scrooge. He would have sat in that tax collection office till the day he died. He would have been rich, and that would have been the end of the story. Instead, he's written a book that has been read by millions. And the book he writes, he's fascinated with lepers and outcasts and women and foreigners because that's what he was. And that's what we all were totally lost. One final thing. I look at this, and we need to have this conviction that the gospel is exclusive. People don't like that about us. Wait a second. Your religion's better than my religion? No, this isn't about religion. Uh, we actually have friends that came to church. Uh, not our church, but they came to a church that we're familiar with and it took years to get them to church. I said, how was it? And they said, well, it was like a cult with a concert. Isn't that an interesting critique of what we do? It's a cult with a concert. Um, and they said, you know, we're really offended. I'm like, why? He said, because they sang this song, Our God is Better Than Your God. I'm like, what? It's that song, Our God is Greater, Our God... They thought we were saying that our God that we worship here is greater than the God of where they go. Oh, how people put things together. <laughs> Christianity is exclusive. Wait a second, you're telling me there's one way to heaven? Yeah. Truth by nature is exclusive. And by the way, Muslims aren't sitting around saying all roads lead to Allah. They think there's one way. Every religion claims exclusivity. But but let's look at it in the context of marriage and the bridegroom. In the context of marriage and the bridegroom, if we go back to Genesis, remember Adam and Eve were naked and not ashamed? And then when they sinned, they knew they were naked? What does that mean? It meant that with this one person you have made a committed vow to, you are unmasked. 
socially, intimately, emotionally, unmasked. You tell this person things you would never tell anyone else. You're an open book to the person you've made a lifelong commitment to. When Jesus died on the cross and said it is finished, he made a lifelong commitment and went all in for you and me. He's jealous for us. We sing that song. And then please don't quote me out of context. Don't take it wrong. We tape everything. I'll prove to you. I didn't say this. Jesus as the bridegroom is saying, you may not sleep with me. You must marry me. That's what he's saying. You can't sleep with me. You got to marry me. I'm all in. You got to be all in. Now, if you don't like that quote, Go to Revelation where he tell, says to the church at Laodicea, you're cold, you're lukewarm, right? I, I wish you were cold, I wish you were hot, you're lukewarm, I'll spew you out of my mouth. I'm not into that kind of relationship. He's espoused us to one husband. He is the bridegroom. He is the physician. And then the, really the teaching is what we're not even going to talk about today. His mission was to put new wine into new wineskins. He didn't come to patch Judaism up. He didn't come to reform it. Tonight in Matthew 24, we're going to look. The 70 AD, the temple was destroyed. That was very important. Because the day Jesus died, sacrifices continued until 70 AD. And then when the Romans destroyed the city, they stopped. And by the way, Islam doesn't come along for six centuries, and they put a dome of the rock there, but the Jews never rebuilt a temple. And the dome of the rock there means they can never build a temple. It means we're living in the time of the Gentiles. And it means that God stopped that system. That was The last supper was the last Passover. It was the last of everything. The veil was torn in two, and God now pours new wine into new wineskins. John Newton, you and me. That's his job. 